You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. There comes a time, I guess, in every relationship where a couple needs to work out, hey, is this, is this thing kind of a bit of a goer here? And um, I can remember the moment where I, I, I knew deep within my being that Bron and I were, were destined to, to be together. It was um, not the kind of a day you might have expected, actually. Um, in those days, I was, I was working with a bank um, and, uh, and Bron was nursing and we had a short window of opportunity um, in the afternoon, probably between about 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock before she had to head off to work for a night shift. And... Uh, and I can't remember if that was the exact hour, but it was a one-hour window of opportunity to see her. And I can't recall, to be quite honest, whether it was a birthday or whether it was uh, just some sort of a dating anniversary, you know, like couples do, you know, <laughs> one month today. Something I can't recall. But I do recall the fact that I really wanted to get from Northcote to Eltham after work as fast as I could to capture that one hour and make the most of that one hour with Bronnie. In fact, it consumed my entire day. The whole day I was thinking about it. Um, I, was, I was planning my lunch hour because there was a market not, not far from, from work and I figured I'll skip lunch actually, head down to the market and buy some flowers. I've never bought flowers before but it can't be that hard. But nonetheless, my entire morning was consumed with how to buy flowers. And, um, and finally I had my lunch hour and I headed down to the market and, uh, and there was all these different flowers and I didn't like the arrangements that they had. Now this had to be, this had to be a special arrangement and uh, I kind of said, can we mix and match some stuff here? And, and I don't know um, how much of my salary I spent on, on flowers by the time we were done but I put together what I thought was an amazing bouquet. Now all I needed was to get, to, to balance the books as a, as a lowly bank teller wasn't a strength of mine actually but I just needed to balance the books at the end of the day and get out of there quickly and uh, so I remember watching, watching the clock as any good employee shouldn't and, and just waiting for that moment where the doors were shut and, and hoping that no last minute customers would come in with you know some, some huge demand or something but, but sure enough the doors got shut and it looked like I was going to get away on time or at least close to time the plan was coming together. I headed out to the car and, and uh, got into the car, which was that, was, that was kind of a bit of a scary thing because I had one shot at it. If I started it on the first turn of the ignition, we were okay, no worries. Uh, but if I didn't, then it really was um, a phone call through to the RACV. And this was before the days of mobile phones and so forth. This was, this was carrier pigeons. This was back in those days. And, um, and so anyway, got it on the first start and I thought, surely the Lord is with me and my pursuit. And, uh, and we, headed, we headed off and then lo and behold, I got stuck in traffic and I could hear the, the engine starting to, to do that rumble thing that it's about to do before it stores. So I remember, you know, clutch and, and, and brake and revs and, and just trying to keep that engine going until I could get off or get moving again and... And then it happened, the stall. And then I knew, I've, I've only been going about 10 minutes and the charge won't be enough and, and I just, just knew it. Sure enough, I turned it over, nothing. Turned it over again, nothing. And I remember some kind people pushed me to the side of the road 
And there on the side of the road, my dreams for the day died. (laughs) And my flowers were wilting in the heat as well. And I knew I was not going to get home in time. And as I locked up the car and made my way for a public, public telephone, Um, to ring RACV and ring Bron and say, I'm not going to make it. Um, I welled up with tears and in that moment, I knew that I liked this girl. Uh, Strangely, I don't know that it had been as apparent to me as it was in, in that moment. But sometimes that happens, you know. You can Now that's just a, you know, a, a little bit of a story that was easy to correct and was corrected, you know, the next day. In some ways you look back and think it wasn't a big deal, but it can feel like a big deal in the moment, can't it? And I wonder sometimes whether as a little bit of a picture, that's not a picture of Christianity for us sometimes, whether we have great plans, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul and mind and we charge off into the Christian walk with great ambitions and aspirations to be the very best that we can be and, and that God and us would be like this and we can't wait to see him but then our plans go astray. I think the Thessalonian Christians felt a little bit like that. Paul had brought the gospel to them, they'd responded in a wonderful way and they just, they just couldn't wait to meet their Lord. They just couldn't wait for that, for that day, the consummation of all things, the end of time, for that moment where they would be together with the Christ that they loved and served. But it wasn't happening the way that they thought it would. Their plans were all going awry. It, was, it just was not a good day or series of days. And they were starting to get a bit impatient. And instead of, instead of working and going about their business in, a, in an honourable way, an ethical way, a way that would reflect well on the kingdom of God, instead of doing all of that, they were kind of just waiting. Like, the Lord's coming any minute. Why bother working? Why bother doing anything? I mean, he's coming. He's coming for his elect. And Paul had to write to them and encourage them. You know what, guys? Stand firm, stay in the race. I know it's not coming together the way that you might have planned. Things are looking different to what you may have expected. I know you just want to be with your Lord. But you know what? Stand firm, be assured, his kingdom is coming. Sometimes I think, well we not just have a bad day but we have a series of bad experiences and our plans just do not come together. We can, we can be a little bit like um, in Star Trek. You know when everything is going wrong and those famous words, beam me up, Scotty. Any Star Wars fan would know this, right, Matt? Beam me up, Scotty, those famous words when all of a sudden, you know what, life is just not panning out the way that I thought it would, but (laughs) there's a way out of this. Beam me up, Scotty, come on, let's let's get this done. And perhaps as, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have thought more than once, this is not Turning out the way I thought, please just beam me up now, God. Can I come home now? Please, 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 please. With cherries. And that's how the Thessalonians were thinking. And Paul writes to them and he explains to them these trials, these tribulations that you're going through. You know what? It's like sitting in examination. It's a test. And it's a difficult test, but it's a test. Let me read to you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Paul says, You know, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, rightly so, 
because your faith is growing more and more and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. So with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a lovely prayer. Paul is actually commending them. He's actually saying, I know, verse 4, you're going through all manner of persecutions and trials But as you endure these things, guess what? You're coming up with an A-plus grade. How do I I know that? Well, I look at your love and I look at your faith and I look at your your perseverance and I see A-plus written all over this exam. It's a a trial, it's a test, it's a difficult one. I know, and you just want to be beamed up. You want to be out of here. But stand firm. You're getting a really, really good grade. Your love, your faith, your perseverance... Top notch. Really, really proud of you. You guys are doing well. Uh, Paraphrase perhaps of this is, for the Thessalonian Christians, your faith and your love and your perseverance show that God has assessed you correctly. Christ really does reign in your hearts. They are are able to demonstrate a, a faith that will move a mountain, a love that refuses to bypass it and a perseverance to climb the impossible. This is what the Thessalonian Christians are demonstrating and and Paul is encouraging encouraging them in this. But then by way of of explaining the trials, the tribulations, the tests, the difficulties that they're going through, because yes, it is a bit confusing at times, isn't it? When our plans just don't come together and we wonder, oh God, where are you in the middle of this? Well, Paul actually explains to them, this this is all part of, of what must come. You see, this is... This is, if you like, a, a sign of the times. We, know, we use that, don't we, as a little bit of an idiom to, to talk about where certain things having a significance beyond themselves to, to tell us that, you know what, this, this time must come and it is a difficult time. And I guess as Christians, sometimes we do find ourselves just looking at the world around us, reading newspapers and so forth, and wondering what is becoming of our world. I mean, how do we understand the end times? Theologians use the word eschatology, a study of the end times. And, and we need to have, if you like, a, a faith-filled eschatology. We need to understand, well, how do things kind of you know, come to an end and wind up as, 
as God ushers in his new kingdom. What does that look like and how do we understand all of that relative to what we're seeing in this day and age right before our eyes? Many people feel scared and fearful and anxious about the days that we live in and what is happening to our world. Well, How are we to understand all of that and approach it as Christians? Do we just say, beam me up, Scotty, <laughs> if you're up there? I don't know if you actually are saved. Peter, maybe you're there. You know, beam me up, can I come home now? But, but no, where to actually stand firm? So what's really happening here? In what way are these, these signs, signs of the times, in what way is depravity and fallenness and deception and brokenness and confusion and division and opposition and being hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, in what ways are all of these things signs of, of the times? You can be forgiven for doubting. Uh, the Christian walk is a little bit like, I, I think, playing football in the fog where you actually can't see for 10 metres. Can you imagine that? You choose any code of football you want, it's pretty much the same. But imagine a thick fog descends on the field. It could be soccer, it could be, it could be football, it could be rugby. That's the game where they just throw the ball in for the heck of it. It's really just about fighting. Um, it could be any, any code of football that you like. But imagine a thick fog descends and, and all of a sudden you can't see more than 10 metres. And you're playing in that and you, can, you can't even make out the different jerseys. You, you kind of, is, that, is, is that our player? Is that our team or not? I, I, don't, I don't know. And you can't make out the colours. You're hearing voices all around you. So, you know, pass it to me, pass it to me. So, is that you, Chris Judd? And you handball and you think, oh, it can't be, he's retired. Oh, no, you don't know what's going on. It's a, it's a very, very confusing sort of a match. Imagine that. And imagine in the midst of this football game with 10 metre visibility... You know, the tackling is the hardest you've ever experienced. Like you keep going down. Imagine that the, the roar of the crowd is hostile and you're actually wondering, are there anyone out there supporting us? Do we have any fans whatsoever? Imagine the opposition is taunting you. They're just, they're just mocking you now. You really feel like the, not only the underdog, you feel like we're not even in this league, man. The commentators, you realise at half time, are ridiculing you. I mean, they just, they just don't even, would not even honour you with the name of being a team. You feel outmanoeuvred by their coach. He's just a brilliant coach. And, and half of you are suspecting that even the referees might be biased. I mean, it's just an unfair game, and you feel that you are losing terribly. Half time is that wonderful time where. Perhaps you come together and, and this is where the coach and the captain together are going to have just inspirational words for you. And you're really hoping that somehow they're going to plan because right now we are losing desperately. And this is going to be an absolute massacre unless something changes here. I guess in 2 Chronicles 20, that's how Jehoshaphat and the Israelites felt. They... They were surrounded by the Moabites, the Ammonites and the Meunites all coming around them and they just felt absolutely surrounded and this is where, you probably heard this verse, famous verse, they said, we don't know what to do but Lord our eyes are on you. Kind of a half time moment. Looking to the coach, have you got a word of wisdom for you? Have you got anything for us? Back to the football analogy. Imagine in that moment the coach and the captain are just got this funny smirk on their face and you're not sure whether it's just 
who are these sick people laughing at the fact that we are, we are being defeated so decisively? Well, what's going on here? How come they're smiling the way they do? What do they know that we don't know? But their words of encouragement are simply, all you need to do is go back out there. You're doing well. You really are. You're doing well. Just go back out there. Stand firm. Hold your position. Honestly, you won't even have to work at this. Trust us. And you're thinking, what sort of a plan is that? This is ridiculous. You're not out there like we're out there. But they just keep smiling. You can't wipe this smirk off their face. It says, trust us. Go out there. Just stand firm. Just hold your position. Trust us. You're not even going to have to work hard at this. You think that is not the inspirational speech that is going to turn this thing around. What is going through their heads? Back to Jehoshaphat. That's exactly actually what the Lord says. The Lord says, you know, the battle is not yours. It's God's. Verse 15, verse 17 of of chapter 20. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Wow. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them, and the Lord will be with you. Wow. What What a message to get. Going back to the football analogy, your coach and your captain are saying similar things there and you wonder what might be going through their head. Maybe, just maybe, they have a different perspective on all of this. They're ecstatic, they're relaxed, they've got this smirk on their face. They know that the goals of the enemy will not prevail. There's something happening in the fog here that they see that you don't see. What is it about their perspective? Or maybe they know. That in their confusion, the enemy are actually aiming at the wrong goals. Every time they think that they score a goal, guess what? It's one more for your side. (laughs) And they're laughing. They're hysterical about it. It's the great reversal. Who would have thought? But they know. They know what's going on. You see, the cross of Christ is, is a great reversal. It's the hinge on which all history is irresistibly turned around. It changes absolutely everything. And yes, I do believe that when we read the Bible, there is a little bit of a theme running through there where God has a smirk on his face because he knows how it all ends. Revelation testifies to that. It's not the the wicked sort of a smirk that belittles the pain and the sufferings and the difficulties that we go through in this life, not at all. It's just that victorious smile that comes with knowing what the end result already is and that the victory is absolutely sure. The cross of Jesus Christ absolutely changed history. It's the hinge on which history is irreversibly turned around. And that's why God smiles. That's why victory is absolutely assured. In Psalm 22, this is the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the moment where we we wonder, was, was there a little crack in the Trinity in that moment? Is Jesus actually questioning his Father, his Heavenly Father? What's happening here, Heavenly Father? But Psalm 22 goes on actually. Jesus just, just quotes the first line and, and opens it up. But he knows exactly how the Psalm 22 continues. Verse 24, He has not hidden his face from me. He knows that his Heavenly Father has not hidden his face from him. 
And verse 28, dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules all of the nations. He knows how this ends. He knows what the cross means. He knows he must endure it, but he knows as a result of this, the heavenly, his heavenly father has not hidden his face from him. He knows who wins. Dominion belongs to the Lord and he absolutely rules the nations. Jesus knows and he quotes Psalm 22 to declare that. Jesus says about his, his kingdom, he says, Take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. He says, Do not be anxious about anything. Via his servant Paul, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be afraid, it is I. Matthew 14, 27. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Matthew eleven twelve. His kingdom will have no end. Luke 1, 33. The gates of Hades will not prevail, Matthew 16, 18. The prince of this world now stands condemned, John 16, 11. Jesus knows that his kingdom will stand and it will stand eternally. He knows. He knows he has the victory. Absolutely. We need to have that same faith-filled eschatology that says, yes, there is trouble in the world, I know, but I also know how this ends. And the kingdom of Christ has no end. We are born into the, the kingdom of God and we understand the end times differently. Let me assure you, a kingdom is definitely coming to an end, but it's not the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of darkness. And we who are born of that kingdom understand these things. So how do we picture this? I've told you a little bit of this story before. Some of you, or for some of you, maybe you, this is the first time you're hearing it. But a few years ago, we, we had the privilege of, of walking with some friends through a very, very difficult time in their family, the loss of their, their daughter to cancer. Now that story actually goes way back to primary school where, where David Wake and I first one Monday morning stood on the basketball court in primary school and discovered, having spoken about what we did over the weekend, discovered that we were both Christians. We made that assumption because we'd both been at church on the weekend and we figured, well, you'd only go there if you had to. And so we figured we were possibly the only Christians in school. We went through primary school together, we went through high school together, uh, that was a lot of fun. We um, um, were good friends. We led youth group together. Um, friends at Diamond Valley Baps and many, many of you guys as well were all a part of that youth group in, in that time. God provided two lovely wives respectively for us and they became great friends and our children were roughly pegged around the same ages and to both families we were, we were given, given lovely daughters, Jade and Bethany, who were the same age and, and who became best buddies as well. And we would regularly holiday down at Sea Spray together and after a little bit of a summer at Sea Spray, the whole world just felt better. You could face anything that the year would, would dish out as long as you had that little time of January together and... And it was after one of, the, one of those such times, a lovely holiday together, that, that uh, Jade and Bethy were having, having sleepovers and, and one morning Bron noticed that Bethany was, was dragging her foot a little bit. She didn't even really notice it. And then had a little bit of facial droop and being a nurse, Bron, Bron thought, that's not good. And um, 
and immediately went to the GP, immediately went into the children's hospital. Um, Dave and Lynn were still coming back from sea spray, um, as I recall, and, and they went straight to the children's hospital and, and there they started the tests and biopsies and so forth to try and work out what was going on. It was less than a year before that, the girls were age 15, less than a year before that they'd been at a conference in New Zealand with Wycliffe Bible translators and Bethy had stood on this huge world map that they had there and she was, she was trying to work out, Lord, where do you want me to go? Being a, being a missionary kid, I guess that's one of the benefits of that is you, you don't necessarily tie yourself to any one country too much and she was willing to go wherever the Lord wanted her but in the end she couldn't really decide where. She just sort of thought, you know, whatever brings you the most glory, Lord. I don't really have one of those significant testimonies, but, but whatever will bring you the greatest glory, that's what I want. But little did she know as she went into the Royal Children's Hospital, God was going to be glorified in, a, in an unusual way. As the, as the diagnosis came back and she realised she had not just a brain tumour, but a very, 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 very bad one. Um, the number of people who had been able to successfully be treated by this was one in a ridiculous figure. I can't recall. But basically this particular tumour spread through the brain like ink and so very, very difficult, if not impossible, to treat. Short of a miracle, the miraculous intervention by God, healing her, which he could, and Bethany knew that he could, we all knew that he could, the question was, would he? How did he want to be glorified most in this situation? And Bethy had every desire to be healed. But more than that, she actually wanted, again, for her prayer to be answered, God, whatever brings you the greatest glory. And so we walked with the family through this, and, and many of you did as well. And you, you can remember quite freshly just, just the, the emotion of that whole experience and, and that time. It was, a, it was a rather amazing time. And then there came the slow, um, I guess, degradation of the body where the cancer took one thing after another. Firstly, it was the left side and then it was, it was Bethy's speech, which was really difficult because well, she loved to talk to anyone. And, and, then, um, and she didn't mind the odd sweetie either, but then she, she couldn't eat the way that, that she used to. And, and then she couldn't see properly as the brain affected her eyesight and, and the text messages were a little bit were a little bit mixed up and there were some very funny ones amongst them, but, but slowly all of her ability to communicate was lost. And when you were with Bethy in those latter days, you, just, you could just see that so much of who Bethy was, was was now gone. The cancer had taken it. And towards the end there was, you know, um, there really just was not much quality of life whatsoever. And I guess we we and the family knew that it would be soon. It would be soon. As one Saturday morning, I, um, the phone rang early and, and Bron, a number of, number of people had been working, you know, staying with Bethy and nursing her and so forth and Bron happened to be there that morning. Jesus Culture was playing in the background and the song Come Away With Me was playing and during the song Come Away With Me, Bethy went. She responded and and she went to be with her Lord. So yes, she was healed, not in the way that we commonly understand it, but healed in a much more splendid, much more spectacular, much more permanent way as she went home to be with her Saviour. 
I ran around to, to join the family that morning and, and I remember as Dave and Lynn came down, they came into the bedroom there and, and, uh, and Lynn, Lynn stood there just looking at the bed and she said, it's dead. And I looked over at her and I, I, I thought I might have misheard what she said. And she said, it's dead. And a smile crept across her face and she said, the cancer. It's dead. And she knew where Bethy was. Bethy had gone home to be with her saviour. But the cancer had finally been defeated. It was dead. It was defeated in the, in the most permanent way possible. And in some respects, that cancer is a little bit like the kingdom of darkness. It's in its death throes. And the closer it gets to that time where it was ultimately or will be ultimately defeated, the worse it looks like it's actually getting here on earth. But in actual fact, these are just the death throes of the kingdom of darkness as it is dying. What we actually see is the dying stages of the kingdom of darkness pushing hard but hopelessly against the advance of the gospel. Like a cancer, it aims to overthrow the body but in actual fact will itself be destroyed. Jesus has overcome sin and death with unstoppable resurrection power. His kingdom will prevail. His kingdom will go on. His kingdom has no end. Absolutely no end at all. We are seeing today the worsening symptoms and they signal that its time is nearly up. The kingdom of darkness is not doing so well. But that's what, was, that's what is being signalled here. Its time is nearly up. We belong to a different kingdom. A kingdom of light, a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom of great power, a kingdom of authority, a kingdom of life, a kingdom of light. And as I said before, this kingdom is absolutely assured and God's scripture speaks to that we know how this ends. We know that Christ gets the victory. And in Revelation 21, John has the vision. He sees a glimpse of how all of this is unfolding. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. It is done. 
I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Beautiful ending. That's how it ends. Scripture's promise to us. It is done. Reminiscent of the words that Jesus spoke on the cross, it is finished. Not it will, it will be finished. It is finished. It is finished. What, what we see a little bit is, is perhaps the difference of what historians call D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was the, was the day in which the Allied troops landed at Normandy in France. That last assault to push Germany back and, and the Nazi regime, imperialist forces. And they, they landed there on the 6th of June 1944 and really by the time they landed, it was over. D-Day simply meant D-Day minus three would be you know, uh, three days before D-Day. You know, D-Day minus two, two days before, minus one, one day before and then D-Day. That was the day that the final assault was implemented and, and really it was over at that point. V-Day refers to a day 11 months later on the 7th of May 1945 in which Hitler, who had now committed suicide, um, in which the, the leader of the, um, the German forces signed over an unconditional surrender and dated it on the 7th of May 1945. And on that day, that's V-Day, that's the victory day. That is the total surrender of the enemy forces. But that was 11 months later. And in a sense, that's a little bit of the, the now and the not yet that we live in. We live in that moment, that, uh, that 11, 11 month period. And surely we're at the 11th hour, you might say from time to time. You know what? We're in that period. We live with the tension of knowing that the D-Day has come. That came at the cross through Jesus Christ. History irreversibly turned around. V-Day, the victory day, is when Christ returns once more. And we look forward to that day with great anticipation. And we know that our, our time will come either of two ways, either when Jesus comes back for us or when we are caught up to, to join him as, as Bethany was. Either way, that will be our V-Day. And we look forward to that time. But in the meantime, what do we do? We stand firm. Ours is, the, ours is the challenge of living between the now and the not yet. The, with that anticipation of all that is to come, knowing that Christ has certainly won and he is certainly victorious. And we now belong to a whole new kingdom, a kingdom that has no end. And Paul would say, I believe to us as he did to the, the Thessalonians as well, you know what, you've done well. You are worthy of the kingdom. You are worthy of this, this kingdom of God's. They give you an A plus for your love and for your faith and for, for your perseverance. But don't give up now. Stand firm. Stay the course. Keep going. Continue to be found worthy of his calling. Verse 11. And a calling that is empowered by him, that by his power you may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. 
God is empowering you to stand firm and he is empowering you to be counted worthy of your calling and worthy of the kingdom. So there we are. Worthy citizens of a kingdom of great worth. You belong to that kingdom. And God says, stand firm. Stand firm. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, you are, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we thank you for your word which is true. We thank you for the promises that come to us through scripture. The declaration of revelation, a vision of, of what will be. In this time where it feels like we are waiting, where it feels like sometimes things aren't going according to plan and we... We can be forgiven for wondering what is happening. <laughs> we rest assured that everything is going to plan. The kingdom of darkness is in its death throes. It is passing away. It is done. And your kingdom, which is advancing forcefully, has no end. And we are a part of that kingdom. Lord, we pray that we will be found faithful in this day and age of standing firm and that many, many more will be one to your kingdom in our time, by our witness, by our testimony. Lord, we pray that they will be wooed by the truth that is found only in you. That there will be a longing for an absolute certainty in a world of so much uncertainty a certainty that can be found in you. So use us, we pray, as your witnesses, as beacons of light, like stars in the night sky, would we be used of you to declare your kingdom and to draw others with a magnetic force to your irresistible love. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.